Well, this morning, as we just read out of the book of Ruth, we continue our study in this, this book, in Ruth, the story of a loving life. If you weren't here last week, we opened up what some might consider a, a hidden gem in the Old Testament and walked through the first chapter of Ruth, entering into the story of a family suffering desperately, clinging to each other in hope and ultimately holding on tightly to the king who rules over all of creation. Now, Ruth chapter 1 ends in, in, in bitterness as suffering starts to sour the faith of Naomi, a widow that's returned home without the security of family, begging for food and, and desperate to find hope. But there's another widow that has come with her mother-in-law, Ruth. She's far from home, but she's stepped into enemy territory, not for her own sake, but for the sake of Naomi. And yet more than that, she's come to Bethlehem for the sake of the God she now calls her own, the people she now calls her own. And what we're going to find in this second chapter is that Ruth is not just the only one that's calling someone or something his own. We'll also find that God calls Ruth his own. Like we experienced last week, faithful love holds on despite disaster. God's faithful love holds on to both Ruth and Naomi but Ruth's faithful love also holds on to God and Naomi. And in all of this, disaster becomes redemption as God's people trust God. There's a, a, a psalm right at the beginning of the book of Psalms. David's song in, in Psalm 9 uh, spells out this trust when he sings in verse 10, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Those who know God's name not just know about God, but actually have a relationship with him, who know his name, these are the ones who trust in him. Why? Because God has never, never in all caps, forsaken those who seek him, those who know him and pursue him, those who want to know him. But me saying these words to you this morning, they're not new, I imagine. These are the kind of words we talk about in, in church all the time. The kind of words we hear when life starts to, to crash down around us and people are trying to be helpful. The words we read in our Bibles during our devotional time. The, the, the words we see on coffee mugs and, and Hobby Lobby decorations. Not knocking Hobby Lobby. We spend a lot of money there. Trust in God. Trust God and let go. Let go and let God. But, but what in the world does that really mean? Are these just magic words that I say and it happens, trusting God and all, I'm trusting in God now? Or are they, is trust more than words? This morning, in this second act of the story of Ruth, what we experience as we, we walk the fields with Ruth and, and sit at the table with Boaz and, and come home to Naomi, is that trusting in God is much more than just a state of mind. It is a way of life, filled with action and risks and emotions. Because trusting in God is about more than what you say. Trusting in God is also about how you live. And in this second act of Ruth, we're going to encounter three different ways that God's people demonstrate their trust in God. In Ruth's example in this second act, we see that God's people trust by, act, by doing, by actually doing something. In Boaz's example, we see that God's people trust by risking mercy. And in Naomi's example, we see that God's people trust by hoping God's people actually do something, they take actual risks of mercy, and they truly hope in God. And all three of those embody Psalm 910. Those who know your name trust in you. 
So I want you to step in together to this chapter 2 and see how these three examples show their trust in God that we might be helped about how we can live out our trust in God. Now, Ruth's first act, we're going into the first verse of chapter 2. Ruth's first act left Ruth and Naomi back in town with fields ready to be harvested. A famine is over, and, and now God's people are picking the food that the Lord has provided through harvest time. But before stepping into the next scene, the narrator of our story explains something to us. Verse 1, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This first sentence sets the tone for the entire chapter. Why? Because there's, there's a man named Boaz who's related to Naomi through her husband, dead husband, Elimelech. There's, there's someone from the same family line, a man of standing, a phrase that stands out because if you remember chapter 1, verse 1, this is a time that is marked by everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, the time when the judges ruled. And so throughout the rest of the story, we're going to find out what this narrator means, that, that, that Boaz is a man both of, of social standing, right? He's wealthy, he's powerful, but he's also a man of spiritual standing, honorable, faithful to God and to his people. And it's almost like in this first verse, the narrator is like whispering to us, like, hey, hold on to this. You'll understand in just a minute. And so we have this man in mind, even if Naomi and Ruth might not, as we eavesdrop on the conversation between these two widows in Ruth 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Last chapter, Ruth was responding to the initiative of Naomi, right? She heard, Naomi had heard that the Lord had provided food for his people. And so she responds, she gets up and goes and, and she has her, her daughters-in-law with her. And she actually tells them to, to go back. So she's taking the initiative to tell them to go back. And, and Ruth responds saying, I'm not doing that. But now in chapter 2, Ruth is the one that's taking initiative. She, she's the one who wants to, to get to work. She wants to find food for them. And so Ruth comes up with a plan that's risky, but not reckless. Courageous, but not foolish. And it's a, clan, a plan that can be summarized in one word, gleaning. Now, now gleaning among the people of God is a practice that God put in place as a matter of justice. And I'm going to make this argument before we step into the rest of the chapter because it really matters for us to understand why everything that happens in the rest of this act is so important, so weighty, so incredible. Gleaning is something that God revealed to his people as a way of life that demonstrates God's care to the most vulnerable. Leviticus 23:22 explains it like this. God tells his people, when you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, what, what kind of falls of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. In other words, do not squeeze everything out of your field or your harvest. Any of the grain that falls as you work or even the grain that's growing on the edges of your field, I am the one who provided the harvest in the first place. And I have provided that for the poor and the foreigner among you. I am providing for them through you and through your field. I've given this to you, and I'm telling you, you don't get to touch this part. It's reserved. Again, in Deuteronomy 24, 19 and 22, God says this. When you are harvesting in your field, same concept, you overlook a sheaf. Like, you, you, you're working, and you leave, and you go, oh, I had, there was one more. God says, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Verse 22, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. 
That is why I command you to do this. The sovereign king is here saying to his people, listen, if you forget something back there, even a whole sheep, like a whole bundle, leave it. That wasn't an accident. That was my hand providing for the foreigner among you, the orphan, the widow, those that do not have security, those that do not have provision. I am providing security and provision by your forgetfulness. Obedience, trusting obedience to God, trusting that he'll provide for you and for others, that there will be more than enough, that you don't have to be 100% productive and efficient. That's the kind of obedience God says in this text, he will bless. And then in 22, he reminds his people, the reason is that they were slaves in Egypt. They know what it's like to be hungry, to be poor, to be defenseless. And thanks to God, they also now know what it's like to be fed and empowered and defended. And so the landowners that are obeying this command to leave food for the poor in their fields demonstrated in the way that they ran their business that they had internalized what God had done for his people in the Exodus. They, in their business practices are demonstrating the freedom and love of their God. In other words, their acts of mercy not only reflected God's mercy, but were proof that they actually and truly embodied God's mercy. And so when Ruth asked Naomi that she's going to go pick up leftover grain, when she's asking to glean, she has a plan to step into God's system of justice intended to provide for everyone. And yet, this is also still the time when the judges ruled. Which is why Ruth explains that she's going to pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. This is why I say her plan is courageous and risky because of the time that she lived in. It is one thing for God's law to be communicated, quite another for it to actually be lived out. And so Ruth is wisely planning to find a field of favor where someone will express kindness and let her glean, where someone will at least in a small way be living out the justice of God, where there might be someone who is still obeying the Lord in a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In this scene, it almost seems to calm the fears that might be rising in her mother-in-law because Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Ruth is our first example of trust. Ruth, this, this poor foreign widow, It's demonstrating her trust in God by putting his system of justice to the test, by doing something. She is stepping out and doing something about it. She is working. She trusts in God's way of life, but she's not ignorant of the brokenness of the world around her. And she knows that she needs to be wise as she acts, but she also knows that trusting God doesn't just sit back and wait. Trusting God lives out that trust by doing Understanding who God is and what he said in his way of life by by being wise and being courageous, but by actually taking action. And the text says she went out. She entered a field and she began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember that guy we talked about just a few verses? As it turned out, as luck would have it, by chance... Ruth began to work in a field, not just any field, but the field of this man, this, this, this Boaz, this, this relative in the same line as a guy named Elimelech that we read about in chapter 1. What a surprise. The surprise in the story doesn't end there because verse 4, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. I'll stop being a little sarcastic. This is not luck. This is not chance. 
This is not some happy coincidence. Ruth went out to put in work, but God has been putting in work behind the scenes. Ruth goes out trusting in God and hoping for favor in the time of the judges, and God has been working favor out, ordering events and situations and circumstances to love and to lead his people. Ruth did not stumble onto this field. Boaz did not just happen to show up at the same time as Ruth was working. This is the sovereign king at work. Nothing in our lives is left up to chance. Everything that's on your schedule has been put there by God himself. We don't live by random luck. We live under the good and sovereign rule of the creator king. What looks like luck to the world is seen with eyes of faith by God's people as his loving and sovereign hand at work. In the good and even in the bad when we don't understand what's happening. Ruth just so happened to show up in one of Boaz's fields. And Boaz just so happened to be coming to his field that day. God was at work while Ruth was at work. In other words, Ruth lived out her trust by doing, by working. And as she did, God's plan is unfolding. Boaz turns to one of the shift supervisors and starts talking to him. He says, who was that? The overseer replies, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, till now except for a short rest in the shelter. Translation, all day. She's been working all day. She took a 15, but that's about it. She's been going hard all day. She asked the shift supervisor, okay, can I glean? And then she rolled up her sleeves and started to put in work. But God's been putting in work in his sovereignty by putting a system of justice among his people where a poor foreign widow could provide food for herself and for her mother-in-law. But also by leading this poor foreign widow, not just to any field, but to the field of Boaz, a man that's related to them, related to the leader of the family who's died, but also a man of standing. Not just a man of means, but a man who obeys the Lord. By leading this man back to his field at the same time to encounter this woman that's working hard to provide, to, he becomes this path of God's mercy and God's justice, which is our next uh, illustration example. But what I want to pause here and see is that God's people at work are reflecting that God has been at work through more than just a legal system. He's also been at work through them. What does it mean to trust in God? God's people trust by doing, by trusting God in what they say and what they do, by knowing who God is and what he's like, and then putting in work, not in order to make something happen, but because you rely on the God who promises to care for and protect his people, especially the most vulnerable. God's people trust in God's goodness, but let's be real, just saying that doesn't really demonstrate trust. It's not until we actually live like God will provide and be good and love his people when we say with our mouths and with our lives that we trust him. And, and this is the theological principle that, that something like God works as we work. Not God helps those who help themselves. God is always at work. And the scriptures are very clear that sometimes God works despite us or even against us. Like when we sin and we rebel and we want to go on our way and, and, and God pursues us in his kindness and in his love. But part of God's design is not that his image bearers would just sit back as he does all the work. 
but that he, we might work as he works, as people made in his image, reflecting his goodness, trusting and depending on him. I'll say it like this. When you go to work and you clock in and you do your job with excellence, you demonstrate your trust in God. When you lose your job and you interview a hundred times and you're trying to be diligent putting in work, you demonstrate your trust in God. When you keep trying and failing and getting back up and trying again as you battle an addiction or some kind of mental illness or whatever it might be, you demonstrate your trust in God. Not because you are making it happen, but because you are trusting in him to make it happen. You are trusting in him. You are relying on him to provide. You are actively, not passively, trusting in him. The next scene in Ruth takes this one step further, though. It describes a life that demonstrates trust in God, not just by doing, but by showing mercy to others. Actually, it's more than that. By risking mercy with others. What does it mean to trust in God? God's people trust by risking mercy, by taking risks in the exercise of God's love and mercy to other people, by, by risking your social standing, by risking personal provision, by risking whatever else might come to, to your mind as a roadblock to mercy. We demonstrate our trust in God every time we risk mercy to others because we are saying by our actions, when we show mercy, especially risky mercy, that God will provide, God is the one who protects, that God is the one who will defend his people. Let me show you what I mean. The text introduces Boaz to us in verse 1, but he doesn't come on the scene until verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Immediately, we experience this man of standing that was introduced to us. He, he shows up and he greets his worker with a blessing in the name of the Lord. Remember what I talked about last week? Lord in all caps, that is the personal name of God. That is Yahweh. He is greeting them in the name of this personal God, and they respond in the same way. This isn't just like, hey, good morning. In the time when the judges ruled, this is an unusual greeting. And this is the first hint that coming into Boaz's field was not just stepping onto personal property, but property that had been committed to God, that had people that were committed to God. In other words, in the days when the judges ruled, the fields of Boaz reflected the refuge of God. They communicated the belonging of God. They encouraged the generous justice of God. These are risky realities in the day when the judges ruled. Because showing mercy, living out the mercy that God gives to his people, it leaves you open to the injustice and unrighteousness of those who have rejected God. Risky because mercy might mean you'll be taken advantage of. Mercy might mean that your social standing goes down by who you associate with. Mercy might mean that your wealth decreases because of your generosity. Let me show you what I mean by talking about Boaz. After the report of his supervising harvester, Boaz actually approaches Ruth. He crosses the boundary of country between them and addresses her as someone that's included the family of God. Notice what he calls her. My daughter. Listen to me, don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. In this first conversation, Boaz confirms what Ruth had set out to find, God's favor and God's safety. And it has come through God's people. 
In this first exchange, God's safety comes through Boaz. God essentially, through Boaz, establishes what one commentator calls the the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the Bible. Because in the days when the judges ruled, it was necessary. When everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, Boaz reflects the safety and refuge of God, and he leads his workers to do the same. He has to tell his workers not to lay a hand on her. It tells you that there are workers that are laying hands on people, laying hands on women, especially vulnerable women. Stay close to the young women. I've commanded the young man to keep their hands to themselves because in these days, the risks of of, of rape and violence were extremely high, especially of widows who had no one to protect them, no one to vindicate them. But God was protecting Ruth, and God was protecting Ruth through Boaz. When she hears all this, Ruth bows down with her face to the ground. She asks him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a a, a foreigner? Surprised to find favor, Ruth humbly asks why. She's a foreigner, and society's default is not to care for the foreigner, but, but at least maybe to do charity for the foreigner, and at worst, to reject and ridicule the foreigner. But that's not how God is writing this story. You see, God has prepared Boaz's heart to answer Ruth's prayer for favor, for kindness, for hope. Boaz risks showing mercy to this foreigner, this Moabite woman, this enemy of God's people, and created a safe place for her. Gone above and beyond and anticipated her danger and her need, offered her protection and provision for this foreigner. Why? Boaz explains, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Not only does Boaz create, cultivate, invite her into God's refuge and safety in his fields, but now Boaz explains the reason that he's doing it. The reason he is doing this is because of all that Ruth has done for Naomi. It's traveled across town. People have been talking about this. Specifically, he he is doing all this and showing her favor because of all that she has done for Naomi by becoming part of God's people. Her her commitment in chapter one to Naomi, that, that Naomi's people will be her people, that Naomi's God will be her God. it's all confirmed and celebrated here by Boaz in this blessing that he offers to her based off of her kindness to Naomi. May that same God reward you, the God who brought you into safety here. May he also bring you into blessing. Boaz here responds to the exclusion that's in Ruth's voice. Why are you being kind to a foreigner like me? By affirming the inclusion of Ruth's life, you left everything to be a part of this to be a part of people you didn't know for your mother-in-law, but more than that, for the God of your mother-in-law. You came to him, to that God for safety. Boaz sees Ruth's life of trust in God, and now he responds with his own life of trust in God by risking mercy with someone that's considered outside, and, and he affirms how inside she has been living. In other words, she belongs to God, and Boaz responds by treating her like she belongs to God. The separation that God created for his people between uh, Israel and, and other nations has never been about ethnicity or race or even national borders. It has always been about theology. This was not about which people group, but which God. 
Ruth has shown in her life that she has thrown herself on the mercy, the grace, the favor of the God of Israel. She's following in the footsteps of Abraham by faith. She separated herself from the gods of Moab and identified herself with the, gods, the God of Israel, the one true God of Israel. She rejected what made her impure and committed to the one who would make her pure. And she even showed that she followed the law by showing kindness to the widow, like the one true God shows kindness to the widow. In other words, because Boaz was loyal to God by the way that he ran his business and lived his life, it was not difficult for him to recognize loyalty to God and Ruth by the way that she lived her life. Real recognize real. Now, Boaz blesses her by saying that God will reward this kind of life. Not like some kind of payback that God owes Ruth for her good deeds, but because blessing, security, provision, they're, they're part of the package deal with the God of Israel. Not that life will be empty of suffering, but it, that it will be full of God's blessing no matter what comes. Ruth responds to Boaz's kindness, but she does it not by presuming upon anything right now, but, but, but humbly thanking him. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She says, you've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Even though I'm not as high up as one of your servants, you've treated me like one of them. She sees herself as lower than low and responds to the kindness of Boaz and treating her as higher than she expects. And yet there's still more kindness that's coming. Not only does she find safety in the refuge of these fields, not only does she find belonging among the people of God, in the final moments of this scene close to the end of the chapter, Ruth experiences the generosity of someone who trusts in God. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, ha have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Everyone is on break, eating together, except for Ruth, she's still working. And Boaz invites her to come eat, to stop working and eat with them. And then his kindness actually extends past allowing her to work and keeping her safe, but including her at this table, providing not just enough for her to eat, but more than enough. So much that she actually has to get a to-go box. Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. He even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and, and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Do not reprimand and do not rebuke her. Boaz's protection, reflecting the protection of God, extends past her physical safety to her psychological safety. Don't lay a hand on her and don't shame her. In fact, not only does she have my permission, but I want you to actually intentionally pull out extras, leave them there for her. In this final order to his workers, Boaz is not only practicing generosity as the one who owns the land, he is encouraging it among his workers. He's giving them an opportunity to participate in the generosity of God. He is discipling them in the ways, in God's ways of justice. What does it mean to trust in God? God's people trust by risking mercy, by providing safety and communicating belonging and encouraging generosity. These are all sacred risks. Risks of, of mercy, risks to our own safety, to our, to our social standing, to our own resources. And yet, Boaz took these risks. Boaz dared to love his God and love his neighbor with his whole life. 
Boaz demonstrated his trust in God that God would keep him safe, that God determined his belonging, that God would provide for his every need. And he showed this trust by risking mercy to Ruth. Boaz is not just concerned about prophets, the prophets of his field. But there's one more way that this chapter describes the life of trust among God's people, and that's in the transformation of bitterness into hope. What does it mean to trust in God? God's people trust by hoping, by holding on to hope, by responding to God's hand and seeing God's hand behind what could be interpreted as chance, by continuing to trust that he will provide. Look at verse 17. Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. Now, Scholars debate on exact measurements here, but I'm going to translate this here for you in 2021. All that Ruth had gathered after she had beaten the stalks and gotten all the grain, the good stuff out of it, the stuff that you can eat, after all of that, all of the food that she gathered that day totaled somewhere between 29 and 50 pounds of grain in one day. Let me give you a reference point. The average worker at this time went home, their pay for one day is of work was one to two pounds of grain. In 1 Samuel 17, an ephah of grain is said to feed 50 fighting men. And let me tell you, those boys can eat. Ruth put in work. God provided abundantly for her. And now, knowing all of that, we wait with excitement as she, for the look on Naomi's face when she comes home with all of this food. Because after she was done threshing, Ruth carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over when she'd, when she'd eaten enough, the to-go box from the meal. She's like, I got this too. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Where in the world were you today? Ruth, you were hoping for favor when you left, but this is more than just some kind of kindness. This is blessing in abundance. And now we can't wait for Ruth's reaction because we know where she worked. And we know who he is, even if Ruth still doesn't have the whole picture. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The narrator is building suspense. Told her about the, the one at whose place, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. And Naomi's face starts beaming. The Lord bless him, Naomi exclaims. He, being the Lord, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man, that's one of our close relatives. He's one of our guardian redeemers. The bitterness that Naomi has, has used to define her relationship with the Lord is starting to crumble because in a moment of realization, Naomi sees more than just some kind of family connection that they have with Boaz. In fact, it's not even the first thing she realizes. What's the first thing she does? She talks about God's kindness to the living Ruth and herself and two widows and the dead, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to these women that are too easily forgotten by society, to this family that's too easily forgotten to death. In this moment, Naomi's face is not the only thing that changes. Her whole outlook is brighter. In chapter 1, the Lord's hand afflicted her, she said. It was turned against her. But now in chapter 2, she sees with eyes of faith that his hand is still at work providing for them. Now, you might be wondering, okay, if she knew this, why in the world did Naomi not go straight for Boaz when she got to Bethlehem? Isn't that what you would do? Well, the story doesn't really tell us why. Maybe 
Maybe after a decade of being gone, she didn't know if Boaz was still around. Maybe, maybe it's because there are multiple relatives and, and Boaz just isn't at the top of the list. He's not just our guardian redeemer, he's one of our guardian redeemers. Maybe Naomi is so lost in her grief and her bitterness that it doesn't even cross her mind the possibility of Boaz serving as this guardian redeemer and, and, and saving them almost. But even if Naomi might not have considered this possibility, God had, and God was in the plans of making it into a reality. And this is the turning point of our story in Ruth, where the hope that peeked out of the grief and the despair that brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem now starts to rip through the darkness with the realizations of what's happening. Because not only is Boaz related, he's a, a guardian redeemer. Not only has God provided way more food than expected with over 30 pounds of grain, but now we see that he's provided some, some kind of path uh, to safety and security with this guardian redeemer. And you might be like, okay, Eric, you keep saying this like it's a big deal. What, what is that? A guardian redeemer is someone in the family who is responsible for the health and well-being of the family, the, the whole clan, not just for one time, but for life. We'll get more into that next week when we're in chapter 3 because of all the things that happened there. But, but what's important in our text is that Boaz is not the only one. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Who is going to take on responsibility for these two widows? For the care and continuation of the family of Elimelech? Is it going to be Boaz? Is it going to be someone else we haven't met yet? Is anyone going to do anything? The text ends like this. Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Ruth is once again described as a Moabite to hint at why she misses the point of this guardian redeemer, like, like you might be, that this is something that God has instituted for his people. She doesn't necessarily grasp how significant this is. So Naomi lets it go, but just for now. She tells her, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work with him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Remember, days of the judges. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth ended up working two different harvests. When all is said and done, she had worked in Boaz's field for almost two months. But now harvest time is done. And in two sentences, we find out that nothing happened. We're waiting for some kind of a guardian redemption and, and, and nothing comes to pass? This is not a good story. Two months of opportunities for Ruth and Boaz to cross paths and keep crossing paths. Now, how are they going to continue crossing paths? There's no more field for them to work in at this point. The widows, they, they have, the, Ruth and Naomi, they have this, enough food to eat for now, but, but harvest is over and eventually food runs out. And the light of hope that, they, that just sparked is starting to dim with each passing day. Naomi's hope at the way God has been kind through the abundance of food, hope at the way God has been kind through the encounter between Ruth and Boaz now has to be hope that waits. They have to hope in God's timing. You see, he brought them back at the right time during harvest. But now harvest is done, and they're living together, and they're waiting until one day something happens. One day, Naomi steps out in faith. One day, God prepares Naomi's heart, begins to prepare Ruth's heart and Boaz's heart, and makes a way for more than just two widows to find rest. But that's chapter 3. Here at the end of chapter 2, 
We encounter this life in Naomi that trusts God by hoping, by recognizing God's hand at work in the world and putting her hope in him rather than her circumstances. Her life has appeared bitter, bitter, but now Naomi communicates hope by giving thanks to God, seeing behind all this stuff a, a chance encounter, past some stroke of luck, and acknowledges the hand of God providing for them. She demonstrates her trust in God by hoping Instead of despairing or just grinding out some kind of existence, her hope comes out in joy at the way that God has provided for them. God's people trust by doing. Ruth did because she trusted. Ruth went out and got to work, put in work because she trusted in God. She relied on him for safety and trusted in his provision. It is not an easy thing for a widow to be like, you know what, I'm going to go into this field and check this out. I'm, I'm looking for one that has favor, but that's still a really scary thing to do. She's not being reckless or foolish. She's being wise and courageous. But that doesn't mean that there's not fear as she steps into that field. And we've learned how uh, feisty Ruth can be, how strong she can be, telling her mother-in-law, listen, I'm not leaving you. I'm with you all the way to the end. Like, you die, and then I'm going to be buried right there next to you. I'm going to go find a field to harvest in. I'm going to find one that I can find favor in, but I'm still going. She demonstrates her trust in God by doing. And the question for us this morning is, how is God calling you to respond to him this morning? How will you go from saying that you trust him to showing that you trust him? What very next step demonstrates your trust in God? Not to earn your place with him, but to show that you already have a place with him. God's people also trust by risking mercy. Boaz risked being merciful to this poor foreign widow because he trusted God. He trusted his, his safety, his standing, and his security to God. He trusted God to keep him safe while he stepped out in vulnerability where people could be taking advantage of him and his kindness. He trusted God to give him his identity rather than some social standing. He trusted God to provide for him, to provide security for him and his workers and his family. This wasn't some zero-sum game in the mind of Boaz. Well, I've got to make sure that I've been taken care of before I make sure I take care of someone else. God pours out his love and his grace and his mercy in abundance. And so Boaz risks mercy because he trusts in an overflowing and abundant God. And in that trust, Boaz becomes the face of a gracious God to these two widows. Consider this today. How have you reflected the grace of God to someone? How have you lived out the freedom from sin, the forgiveness from God, the mercy and grace that you've received in Christ to someone else? As the people of God, our kindness to those that cross our path comes out of, is founded upon a trust in Christ. Out of an internalized gospel where the message of salvation is not just something we believe, but we live out. We demonstrate our trust in God that we actually believe that God will provide for every one of our needs when we risk loving and serving others in his name. God's people also trust by hoping. By recognizing behind the scenes that God is at work and trusting in him to do what's right, to provide what's needed, to see in the mercy of others, not just coincidence, good deeds, but the goodness of God. To, to look at a meal that someone brings over or an encouraging text from a sibling in Christ and see the hand of God caring for and encouraging you. Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, they're not famous by any stretch of the imagination. Not before this story. 
This whole story is what made them famous. But in, in the ancient Near East, in the, the, the newspapers of the Bethlehem, nobody really knows these names, these important names. They're ordinary people. That's what's crazy about this chapter. If you really think about it, it's just super ordinary. It tells the story of everyday people in ordinary circumstances, harvesting, and then a little bit of a weird thing happens. She gets a lot more than you would think. But God is at work communicating his love and his salvation through, like one author writes, the faithfulness of ordinary saints in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. God can do what he wants, even if he only has a few faithful people in a nation dominated by disobedience and anarchy like the time when the judges ruled. A few faithful, ordinary people like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, like you and like me, because we trust in the one who did what we couldn't. We trust in the one who risked everything. We trust in the one who gives hope. You see, in the story, the line to Jesus gets brighter and brighter as we dive deeper into these chapters. Someone greater than Boaz is coming. Boaz provided physical food for hungry people, for Ruth and Naomi, and Jesus even did that too. But, but in a way that's greater than Boaz, Jesus provided spiritual food for dying people, for sinners that are starving of righteousness. Every time we take communion, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember the sacrifice of the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. The gospel is clear evidence that like one theologian writes, God is great enough to do what he says he will do. As we approach communion, I want you to look through Ruth's hard work, Boaz's mercy, and Naomi's hope and see on the other side the love of Jesus Christ who put in the difficult work of taking on flesh, of living life in a broken world and dying, who demonstrates his, his mercy to us by dying and coming back to life, who offers his salvation to anybody who believes, who, who generates unfailing hope because by his resurrection and by his spirit, he promises not just new life now, but eternal life with him forever. So as we continue in worship this morning, we're going to be handing out the communion cups this time. We're going to come to communion. And I want us to see past the examples to the one all these examples point to, to Jesus Christ himself. Now, communion is an ordinance of the church family that proclaims the gospel to us in visible form. That, that communicates a message of abundance for all who believe. A testimony of the grace that overflows from God to all who have faith in Jesus. Now, we're passing out the communion elements, and I'm going to ask you to, to wait before opening them. You guys remember all the crinkling that happens. We'll open them and take them together, and I'll ask for someone to bring me one, because I was running around this morning. Um, but I'm going to lead us through communion. Thank you, Deb. And I'll let you know when we open each part, okay? Every time we participate in communion, we approach the Lord's table together. We tell the gospel story to each other. We remember not just the sacrifice that it took to save us, but the abundance of love and grace and mercy and healing that's available to us in the sacrifice of Jesus. I said this before, and one philosopher explains, we, when we take, we eat, we raise, we drink, we restory one another with the story of the gospel, the good news of salvation, good news that begins with bad news and reminds us that we desperately need salvation. 
that we are sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. And so we approach this table not proudly, but in humility. We approach confessing our sins and repenting, not because we have to earn our seat, but because he has already paid for our seat, and what he calls us to is holiness. We confess and we repent because we are saved, not because we need to save ourselves. And the Christian life is a life of repentance. It doesn't just stop when you become a Christian because Jesus is consistently and constantly making us holy. And he does that through our confession and our repentance and the Spirit's continued work in us. And so as we enter that rhythm of repentance and communion now through confession, I want to encourage you as we take time to silently confess before God, before we eat and drink, to invite you to remember the gospel. Now, if you're here and you don't believe this morning, my invitation to you is to receive the Jesus of the table before you receive the elements of this table. Because this table is not magical. It doesn't just make you saved. We receive Jesus by faith. And this is a rhythm we enter to remind us of that faith. And so if you are a Christian, my plea with you is to remember the gospel as we take and eat and raise and drink. And so I want to enter into a time of silent confession before the Lord, confident of his forgiveness in Christ as we remember the gospel that has saved us. Merciful Savior, this morning we confess our sin before you. We repent of the ways in which we speak, act, and live out the desire of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, to be like you apart from you. This morning we turn from our sin and towards you, trusting in your forgiveness, in your finished work on the cross. As we eat this bread, we remember your body broken for us that brought healing to our souls. And will one day bring healing to our bodies, your body restored for us in the resurrection. We thank you for saving us. We remember your salvation together as we take and as we eat. Amen. Let's open the bread and we'll hold it up together. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Holy Savior, in humility, we thank you for your blood that paid for our sins. Your precious blood, more precious than silver or gold, that has redeemed us that has brought us back from our slave master's sin. This morning, we thank you for saving us and remember your salvation together as we raise and drink. Amen. Let's open the cup. We'll raise it together. The Apostle Paul continues. In the same way after supper, he took the cup. 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, over all this morning, we have proclaimed the death of Jesus together. As we've eaten and drank and visibly communicated the sacrifice that paid for our sins, we thank you for saving us. We've sung about your salvation. We've read about your salvation. We've remembered your salvation at the table, and we pray together that you would continue to shape us with the good news of your salvation as we live out our faith this week. Make us people who default to prayer for everything. Help us to walk in humility and grace. Empower us to resist temptation and pursue a closer and more intimate relationship with you. Put people in our path to encourage and exhort with your gospel. Help us to have the wisdom and the courage to do that well. May we recognize the encouragement and exhortation of your gospel with the people that you put in our path towards us. May we remember the God-man that's worthier than Boaz, who redeems us from all our iniquities and heals all of our diseases. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.